that in our experience is a fulcrum event for the Fed to raise alarm bells and say, this might be a point for us to pivot or back off or begin to cut interest rates, knowing again that it takes a very long time for their blunt instrument to bleed into the system. And then at that point, they can start to bring that unemployment rate down or recalibrate policy. You're listening to IBKR Podcasts. Find more conversations at ibkrpodcasts.com. Please remember any trading discussions are for information purposes only and are not intended to portray recommendations. Please listen to further disclosures at the end of today's episode. Now, welcome to our show. Welcome to another IBKR podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Wilkinson. This week's guest is Revue Capital's Chief Investment Officer, Neil Azus. We like to preface upcoming Federal Reserve meetings with an interview with Neil since he follows macro aspects and monetary policy extremely closely. I think an awful lot of Neil and what he's got to say. So we are delighted to have him here as a guest on the show. Welcome, Neil. Huge welcome. How are you? Thank you for having me, Andrew. I'm fine. Happy holidays to you and to your audience. Thank you very much. And the same back at you. We're going to talk about the Fed. Let's put some context on where we stand as we're recording this podcast. We're taping this show for the benefit of the audience after Fed Chairman Jerome Powell set the equity market alight when he discussed the likelihood of moving from interest rate raises of 75 basis points down to 50 basis points but we're recording ahead of the non-farm payroll data. So, Neil, now that investors seem to have softened their fears over the pace of interest rate increases heading into the December FOMC meeting, where does the land lie from your perspective now? Sure. Uh, I think that's an accurate statement, Andrew, for several reasons. Uh, just keeping things very simple, the Fed has come a long way in a very short period. Now i got to put my wonky macro hat on and translate what that means in institutional markets speak about the Fed coming a long way. So as I mentioned to you, I think in previous podcasts or in general, uh, there's a concept called the neutral rate of interest. That's the prevailing interest rate at which the economy runs at its potential, meaning it's not overheating or it's not excessively cooling down. The reason I mention that is, is that the Fed has, quote unquote, demonstrably surpassed that neutral rate. Let me give you a couple of data points about that and why that actually translates into um, fears of the pace of interest rates decreasing. Okay, so the Fed publishes every quarter in their uh, in their economic projections this neutral rate, and their recent quote for that is that they think the equilibrium rate for the economy is around two and a half percent. Well, the market is pricing a terminal rate as of this morning right around five percent, so almost double that neutral rate. Okay. At one point a few weeks ago, that rate got up to five and a half percent. So even more demonstrably above that neutral rate. Okay. So when you think about being two and a half percent or three percent above the neutral rate, you kind of have to have a baseline and say to yourself, well, what does that mean relative to other past cycles in terms of surpassing that neutral rate? Well, it's pretty easy. If you just go back and look at them and you say, on average, that terminal rate or the rate at which the cycle will end tends to max, max out around 1.2% higher than that Fed's neutral rate. So in this case, it would be around 3.7%. And there's different variations of that, of course, Andrew. I mean, I think the lowest once was we were three quarters above the neutral rate and the highest was around 1.75% above the neutral rate. The point here is, is that the max terminal pricing that exceeded 
this cycle's neutral rate, as I just mentioned, is around 3%, or almost more than one and a quarter percent beyond the extreme ever recorded in prior cycles. So when you just think about that, we've overshot at one point here, this equilibrium rate of the economy, almost by two times the historical extreme. So that's why you're seeing, Andrew, you know, people starting to have a different sentiment shift that the Fed is much closer to being done because, A, we're in unprecedented territory, but the degree of that unprecedented territory is just enormous at this stage. And then the second reason, and I'll just leave it with this, is that there's a consensus view now uh, that this is not coming from me. This is just the market's consensus view that inflation peaked last June. It took four or five months for the consensus to build to reflect that, but that's where they think CPI peaked last June. So the next step is for this CPI number to converge below the Fed funds rate. So if I told you that the market's pricing in around 5% of a terminal rate, and that's where the Fed's headed towards, and inflation's at 7% right now, it's starting to converge pretty fast, or that process is starting to gain speed. So whatever they're doing, it's working. So when you add up the fact that the CPI is on its way to fall below the Fed funds rate or converge with it, along with the degree of how high we are above that equilibrium neutral rate, you get this change in sentiment. And when you consider those powerful observations, uh, Andrew, the conclusion becomes uh, a bit easier. So, for example, just interest rates are too high above neutral. There's a downshift in inflation. So, as you said, sentiment's turning incrementally positive. And the price action across different asset classes, as we've seen over the last two or three weeks, is certainly starting to confirm that. So given that it's been a harder and faster ride from the Fed than most people expected earlier this year, how does that shape the outlook for 2023? So our our working thesis is that that soft inflation that we saw in October is now repeatable. And the easing of these uh, price pressures will be enough uh, for the Fed to stop raising interest rates and then ultimately pull forward interest rate cuts from the year of 2024 to sometime around mid-2023 or the summer of next year. And, and if that happens, or in that instance, that the headwinds that we saw this year, they will transition to positive tailwinds for both stocks uh, and bonds uh, next year. And, and, and there's a dozen or so of these types of uh, headwinds that can transition to tailwinds, but just focus on the big three because they probably drive 70 to 80 percent of all the risk premium associated in the marketplace. And those are pretty easy. One would just be, as we just talked about, the pace of Fed tightening slowing dramatically or reversing to a cut. The second one being the Russia-Ukraine war. So, you know, caveat that, you know, if there's no nuclear confrontation or escalation, odds are that, you know, we're coming from the abyss. Any semblance of peace treaty or resolution around that uh, war would be incrementally helpful to sentiment. Uh, and then the third one that uh, is pretty obvious out there is just China's COVID policy, where they've been on a lockdown. So if they've been on a lockdown for a year, if they move away from a lockdown sometime next year, that should benefit supply chains, global growth, et cetera. So I'm, I'm sniffing a bit of a soft landing here. Neil, what or when does a, does a recession, what does it look like for the U.S.? Honestly, Andrew, I just dread that question. Um, why? Because... I don't even know what a recession means anymore in today's world. If you asked me that question pre-2008, before the global financial crisis, I would have defined a recession, uh, at least in economic terms to me, 
that there was a default cycle occurring, meaning that the Fed's interest rate hikes or uh, you know their efforts uh, were designed to lead to some concept of bankruptcy to wash out the bottom quartile of companies that couldn't uh, exist in the survival of the fittest world. Well, well, that concept got removed in 2008. So to the extent the Fed is actually going to revert back to that, then that would dictate a recession for me because it would lead to wider credit spreads, much tighter funding conditions. Uh, we would probably see the credit markets lock up, et cetera. And that hasn't been the case this year. So for me, I struggle to answer when a recession occurs and what that actually means. I guess if you put a gun to my head, I'm in the camp that the hard landing in markets already occurred this year and that there's a greater than a 50% chance next year uh, the markets, the, 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 the government, they engineer a mild recession, aka a soft landing. And, and conversely, if it turns out that the Fed is forced to resume interest rate hikes or take that terminal rate or where the ending rate will be all the way up to 6% or beyond, well, then we'll be in a deeper recession and that quote unquote hard landing scenario. So that's kind of how I think about things. Right now, I'm reasonably constructive that we're going to come out of this. Well, that that that's a great a great segue into my next question, which is other than the consumer price index or inflation data at large, what data points then would would likely cause the FOMC to feel that the job isn't really done yet, and that they have to keep on going further than either we expect or, to your point, that we resume tightening. So one of the things that we've been focused on here this year is is really trying to think keep things very simple and start at a very high level to use that poor MBA where the, you know, a helicopter view or from 30,000 feet up. And so our focus here and that spirit has just been simply on inflation and jobs. Everything else, while important, is really a secondary input in how we're going about things. So in that spirit, I believe that the other metric that matters most besides CPI is employment. I mean, after all, uh, the Fed has a dual mandate of both employment and price stability. So within employment, uh, I'm focused on two precise items. Uh, the first one, Andrew, is the unemployment rate. Uh, I'm going to take you a little bit for a turn here. So it's not so much the absolute rate. Did it go up by 0.2 or 0.3? And that's going to signal a recession. For me, what I like to do is, is think about it in Fed terms, where they like try to analyze things over a three to six month uh, viewpoint. So we like to take the three-month average of the uh, employment rate. And traditionally, when the three-month average unemployment rate rises by half a percent, so in this case, if the low was, say, 3.5%, if the three-month average turns into 4%, right, and it's and it's above the low of the prior 12 months, which it would be in this case, so if we went from 35 to 4%, the economy traditionally is in a recession, or it's about to be. That, in our experience, is a fulcrum event for the Fed to raise alarm bells and say, this might be a point for us to pivot or back off or begin to cut interest rates, knowing, again, that it takes a very long time for their blunt instrument to bleed into the system. And then at that point, they can start to bring that unemployment rate down or recalibrate policy. The, the second metric, uh, Andrew, beyond inflation that we're looking at within the employment data is this critical metric of the ratio of uh, job openings to unemployed workers. Uh, I'm sure you've heard this referred to as before, it's the JOLTS data. It comes out once per month. It's not something that I particularly pay a lot of attention to uh, or our firm does in our investment process, 
but I'm highlighting it here as a, as a secondary metric to watch because Chairman Powell appears to be fixated on this metric, and we need him on board for a proper pivot in Fed policy. So currently, this JOLTS data is still high on an absolute level, but, over, but the recent month-over-month -month changes are showing declines are widespread. So it's starting to move in the right direction for what appears to be uh, the preferred metric of the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Those are the two things I'm watching, the unemployment rate, the three-month average, and then the JOLTS data ratio uh, that Powell watches. And just an editorial note here, the 30,000-foot view that you talked about due to inflation is now the 33,000-foot view. <laughs> That's great. Now, <laughs> now, Neil, you've always done some excellent work regarding the status of the shape of the yield curve and how the money market always starts to price in rate reductions. You've mentioned that a couple of times already. How has that conversation shifted during this year, given given that we're in December and I think you've gone a lot faster than anybody ex expected? There's still more to come. I, th I think you know, monetary policy has really taken the market by surprise this year. How is, and, the, and the curve's also become more, more inverted, right? Uh, late November. What, what, what's, what's happening now? So there, there's two ways to look at it. There's the way, what I would call the pedestrian view. Uh, and then there's uh, uh, how professional investors uh, tend to think about the shape of the yield curve and what it means for investment expressions. Uh, and I'll just give you both. So just generically, this is the first time in at least two decades that the quote unquote global yield curve is inverted. So not just the U.S., if you took a, a, an index of all the twos and 10-year slopes of the yield curves in the major D, G10 countries, that yield curve is now inverted. So on a global basis, if you believe that the yield curve is a precursor to a recession or has uh, forecasting ability, globally, we're in a recession. Mm -hmm. In, in the U.S., it's, it's, it's very similar, but it's more pronounced. And I'll give you an example. So yes, the entire U.S. yield curve is inverted. And I appreciate that the you know most market agents focus on the traditional ones like the two-year, 10-year slope. Or if you like to follow the Fed's preferred measure, they like the three-month versus the 10-year slope of the yield curve. A at this stage, I would just highlight that the one-month all the way out to the 30-year slope is fully inverted or quote unquote the entire yield curve so it's much more pronounced than that and and then to your point andrew the depth of these inversions is pretty much an unprecedented territory i suppose you could go back and look at a chart of a standard yield curve and say oh it got slightly or more deeply inverted in in 1979 to the 1982 period but i'd like to remind people that they were increasing and cutting interest rates every day during that period during uh, by multiple percentage points, uh, whereas now it's a committee, it's not driven off of mark the market's uh, uh, conventions. So it's a very different world. So we are in the abyss of inversion in terms of the depth of it. And then in the breadth of it, we go from the one month to the 30 year. So it's very pronounced. And, and I'm gonna end this part of this with what I think the best expression is, but in general, what's most interesting about the current shape of the yield curve and really sort of the next 18 months, not so much the precursor to a recession or economic impact, is that the Federal Reserve has signaled to the marketplace that once they raise their federal funds rate to a certain level, they're going to keep it elevated for an extended period of time. So the market actually believes them. And, and what that means, too, is, is that we're still pricing in 
further interest rate hikes between now and say the springtime. Mm. And then between the springtime and say September, they've got this pause built into it. The market's terminology for that is they've got a kink in the curve, a quote unquote kink. And then after that, they start to look at some interest rate cuts in the second half of next year and then really more forcefully in the year 2024. And, and the reason that that's relevant, Andrew, is that traditionally the Fed cuts an interest rate after the last hike. There is no semblance of a pause historically. So the market has this kink in here at the time being. So the question becomes is, will the data that you referenced earlier, the employment data tomorrow, or the inflation data in mid-September prior to the Fed meeting? Mid-December. Sorry? Oh, Mid-December or mid-September? No, mid-December, I'm sorry. The CPI data in mid-December, the inflation data prior to the Fed meeting, will either of those data points be soft enough that makes the market push the Fed meaning or force their hand to say, okay, we're going to remove this pause stuff and go back to what we're traditionally used to, which is once you finish raising an interest rate, on average, you tend to cut that interest rate six months later. And it's been as quick as almost one month and as long as 13 months. So this idea of a pause, we got to get rid of that and, and that kink in the marketplace. So that's kind of where we're at. And then what I think is, is, is really at some point, the yield curve will begin to steepen from this massive inversion or this massive flattening. And as we head into next year, Andrew, I believe wholeheartedly that capturing that transition from the inversion to the steepening will likely be the investment expression of next year uh, based on the amount of capital that can be deployed to that strategy, uh, meaning it's infinite given the U.S. Treasury market. So uh, uh, we're very focused on when this inversion ends and when the steepening begins. And if you get that right, you'll probably be in pretty good shape for the year. And, and that tends to happen very, very quickly. Yes. Yeah. It's blinking, you miss it. Very hard to handicap. What, so, so, Neil, let's, let's do a few quick fire questions just, just to end, end, end the podcast. What, what, uh -oh. what, what film, what film <laughs> you, you mentioned the, the, the kink in the curve, and I'm thinking back to the 60s and the, the British band, The Kinks. What film, <laughs> what film or song is going to describe best 2022 for you? Oh, that's a good one. Let me just think about a film or songs that came out for four seconds here. Oh, okay, I got one. I, I, I really like that Top Gun Maverick movie. And, and here's why. I, I think after almost 30 years in financial services, I'm still pushing the envelope and confronting any investing ghosts of the past. <laughs> and there's been quite a few this year. There's a lot of investors have not seen this kind of environment. It's been it's been a unique year. OK, that, that's a good answer. Top Gun. I don't know. Does does Tom Cruise have a rearview mirror? Let, let's 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 have a look in your rearview mirror, not your rearview <laughs> mirror, but your rearview mirror. What was your trade of the year? Anything you like? Hmm. I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say I'm gonna probably give you an answer off the beaten path. My, my trade of the year was really time management as our business grew dramatically, and, and most critically within time management, it was reducing my intake of political news. It has not only helped me emotionally to just shut off that noise, but it's helped me with a lot of time and money. Has your blood pressure gone down? It has. <laughs> it's it's, it's it, it, just turn off the TV. Yeah, I I feel the same way. Who's who's your person of the year? Another good one. 
So I, I, I don't like to focus on any individual ones. Uh, uh, for me, it's, it's, it's never a person. It's more of a metaphor. Uh, and I would say just in this instance, it's the underdog. I've seen many examples uh, this year where the underdog has been successful, and I'm just always rooting for them. And if you survive this year and you were a small investor, a small firm, you know, my hat's off to you. This has been a difficult year. I always root for the underdog. It, it, does, it, does, is that going to extend to the United States and the World Cup? <laughs> That's a tough one. <laughs> uh, wait, Andrew, are, are, is the U.S. an underdog? <laughs> um, we'll find out after this weekend. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what about your event of the year? What's the most notable event for you, Neil? Sure. This one's pretty personal, but an immediate man, an immediate family member beat cancer. And, and just keeping things real simple, Andrew, in the spirit of this year, nothing matters more than family and health. Good man. Good man. Uh, final question. Have we seen peak Trump or not? Oh, man, Andrew, you just never take it easy on me, do you? <laughs> so the, the, the answer for me is is yes. And it's, it's unequivocal. Uh, and it's not a political bias. It's more of electoral math to me. You know, his, his win back in 2016 um, did not really come from the 35 percent of his base that's going to follow him to the end of the earth and back. It really came from office park dads and, and what they call soccer moms. And, and that base, which represented 15 percent or the independent vote or the swing vote, I just don't see them voting for him again. And, and furthermore, now, you know, based on anecdotal conversations from you know both of those cohorts, I just get the feeling that they want him off the stage altogether. Neil Azus, Chief Investment Officer at Rareview Capital. Thank you very much for joining me ahead of the Federal Reserve and enjoy the holidays, mate. Thank you, Andrew. Happy holidays. Appreciate it. Likewise. And uh, don't forget, folks, uh, thank you for joining me today. Don't forget to check us out at ibkrpodcast.com or wherever you download those podcasts from. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for listening to IBKR Podcasts. As always, we have more episodes at ibkrpodcast.com. And if you're interested in learning more about interactive brokers, visit ibkr.com. We offer more trading education material, such as webinars at ibkrwebinars.com, financial and economic commentary at tradersinsight.news, market-related courses at tradersacademy.online, and quant-related articles at ibkrquant.com. The analysis in this material is provided for information only and is not and should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security. To the extent that this material discusses general market activity, industry, or sector trends, or other broad-based economic or political conditions, it should not be construed as research or investment advice. To the extent that it includes references to specific securities, commodities, currencies, or other instruments, those references do not constitute a recommendation by IBKR to buy, sell, or hold such investments. The material does not and is not intended to take into account the particular financial conditions, investment objectives, or requirements of individual customers. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and, as necessary, seek professional advice.